0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of part two, chapter six, the second half, and chapter seven. It was a long reading, so it's a long summary, but I hope it's still helpful. After his conversation in the restaurant with Zamyatov, Raskolnikov goes out, trembling from a hysterical sensation tinged with rapture. Any irritation stimulates his energy— but his strength fails as soon as the stimulus is removed. Left alone to contemplate what just happened, Zamyatov makes up his mind conclusively, Ilya Petrovich is a blockhead. Raskolnikov opens the restaurant door and stumbles against Razumihin on the steps. Razumihin looks first astounded and then angry. He had gone to Raskolnikov's apartment and had since been looking for him. Raskolnikov tells him he is sick to death of all of them, and to leave him alone. Razumihin threatens to tie him up in a bundle and carry him home. Raskolnikov says calmly that Razumihin is persecuting him with his benevolence, showered on one who... a thought he doesn't finish, and that he is hindering his recovery by irritating him. He says that he had no right to tend to him in his illness, perhaps he wanted to die, and that he has no right to use force against him now. The whole time, he had gloated beforehand over the venomous phrases he would utter. Razumihin lets his hand drop and tells him to go to hell. But as Raskolnikov moves to go, he is again overtaken by his own unconquerable kindness. He roars at Raskolnikov, that he is one of those babbling idiots who feign independence, brood over their troubles, and have lymph in their blood. He tells Raskolnikov to stop being a poser and a fool, and to come to his housewarming party, where he can lie on the sofa and be among company. Raskolnikov refuses, but Razumihin bets he will regret fighting with Razumihin and change his mind, as men do. Raskolnikov answers spitefully, that Razumihin would do that, because he is the sort of person who would let a man beat him from sheer benevolence. Razumihin lets this insult roll off him too, renews his invitation, and reminds Raskolnikov of the address. Raskolnikov walks away, and Razumihin immediately begins punishing himself for letting him go off alone, when he is clearly mad and might drown himself. He chases after him. But Raskolnikov is gone. Raskolnikov makes his way to X Bridge, so weak he can barely reach it. Gazing down at the water, he sees the reflection of the passing activity and the setting sun. Suddenly, he sees a woman with a wasted face and sunken eyes climb over the parapet and throw herself into the canal. Dozens of voices call out that a woman is drowning and the banks of the river become thronged with spectators. A woman cries, Mercy, and begs someone to save the woman, their Afrosenia. A policeman rushes down and pulls her out at once, and she recovers consciousness. The woman who had cried out for her says she is a neighbor who had tried to hang herself just the other day. Raskolnikov looks on all this with indifference and disgust thinking to himself, "'Water. It's not good enough.' He considers the police station instead, and begins walking toward it. His heart is hollow, and he no longer even feels the energy to make an end of it all. His mind then becomes a tangle of doubts. "'It is a way out. Or is it? "'He will still get his square yard of space.' shall he really tell them? Does any of it even matter? Above all, he feels ashamed at being stupid, but he rebukes himself for caring even about that. On his way to the police station, he feels compelled to take a detour, and then he finds himself at the gate of the house. He mounts the staircase to the fourth floor, noticing the changes as he goes. Then he arrives at the old pawnbroker's apartment, where, to his surprise, he hears men's voices. He goes inside, surprised to find it so different, expecting everything to be as he left it, with the corpses still there on the floor. It has bare walls, no furniture, and workmen are there to paper the walls. They take no notice of Raskolnikov. As the workmen engage in trivial banter, Raskolnikov walks into the room where the chest of drawers had been, and he looks around. Now one of the workmen looks at him askance and asks what he wants. Raskolnikov does not answer, but instead steps into the hall and rings the bell again and again, each ring giving him more satisfaction. The workman asks again what he wants, and Raskolnikov says he is interested in the flat. He asks them if there is any blood, telling them two women were murdered there. The workman then becomes uneasy. Raskolnikov says to come to the police station, and he will tell them everything. A group of people stand at the gate, including two porters, a peasant woman, a man in a long coat, and a few others. Raskolnikov asks one of the porters if the police station is open and whether the assistant is there. The workman anxiously describes Raskolnikov's strange behavior, and the porter frowns and asks Raskolnikov who he is. Raskolnikov answers him mechanically, in a lazy, dreamy voice. The man in the coat says to take him directly to the police station, but the peasant woman declares he is a rogue. They decide it is better to have nothing to do with him, and they tell him to get along. Raskolnikov asks himself again whether he should go to the police station, when suddenly he sees a crowd and hears shouting. He walks toward it. A mass of people, shouting and exclaiming, is gathered around an elegant carriage, while the coachman stands by, repeating, "'What a misfortune!' Raskolnikov pushes his way in and sees on the ground a man who had been run over, lying unconscious and badly injured. The coachman insists there was nothing more he could have done. He shouted to him, but the man was either drunk or he did it on purpose, and voices in the crowd confirm his story. He does not appear too anxious, though. The carriage belonged to a rich and important person and the police were eager not to upset his arrangements. When a lantern lights up the injured man's face, Raskolnikov realizes that he recognizes him. He tells the police the man is Marmeladov, informs them where he lives, and asks them to carry him to his lodging, saying he will pay for a doctor. He says there is sure to be a doctor in the house, and he might die before they can get him to a hospital. Meanwhile, Katerina Ivanovna was home, talking, as she often did of late, to ten-year-old Polenka, who always listened obligingly, understanding that her mother needed her. Polenka was undressing her younger brother so his only shirt could be washed, while their still younger sister, dressed in rags, waited her turn. Katerina Ivanovna was thinner than even the week before, "'and she broke into long, terrible fits of coughing. "'She told Polenka stories from her luxurious past, "'when a princess at a ball called her a pretty girl, "'and she declined a prince's offer "'because her heart belonged to another, "'while she began the grueling work of washing and mending "'that will take her most of the night. "'Her stories are interrupted by a crowd "'pushing into the room,' carrying Marmeladov, Raskolnikov orders them to put him on the sofa, while Katerina stands white and gasping for breath, and the children tremble and clutch at her. Raskolnikov tells her not to be frightened, and announces again that he will pay. Katerina Ivanovna begins tending to Marmeladov, stifling her screams. Raskolnikov sends for a doctor, saying yet again that he will pay. Katerina Ivanovna takes the water from the heavy basin for her washing and uses it to clean the blood from Marmeladov's face. Raskolnikov realizes that it might have been a mistake to bring Marmeladov here and not to the hospital. Katerina Ivanovna tells Polenka to run for Sonia, and the little boy calls after her, "'Run your fastest!' The policemen leave, driving out the crowd, but almost all the lodgers from the house stream in, while Katerina Ivanovna begs them, her pleas interrupted with choking coughs, to at least let him die in peace. They listen to her in awe and squeeze back into the doorway. Madame Vexel comes in to restore order and says they have no business making a disturbance there. Katerina Ivanovna speaks to her in a haughty manner, asks her to close the door behind her and admit no one, and points to Raskolnikov as a wealthy and connected friend who has come to their aid. Her speech is cut short by coughing, and at that moment Marmeladov regains consciousness with a groan. She runs to him and looks at him with a sad but stern face, tears trickling from her eyes. Marmaladov recognizes her, and with croaking voice asks for a priest. Katerina Ivanovna cries out in despair. He then sees the littlest, Lida, his favorite, shaking in the corner, and with frenzied eyes mutters, barefoot. Katerina Ivanovna cries irritably that he knows why she is barefoot. The doctor then comes in looking around mistrustfully. He examines Marmeladov, whose chest is gashed, crushed, and fractured, and he whispers to Raskolnikov that there is no hope. He will die immediately. At that moment, the crowd parts, and the priest comes in, bearing the sacrament. Marmeladov makes his confession, while Katerina Ivanovna kneels in the corner and makes the trembling children kneel in front of her. She tries to pull the boy's shirt straight and to cover the girl's bare shoulders without rising or ceasing to pray. Polenka then arrives, saying that Sonia is coming. A young girl makes her way through the crowd, decked in the gutter finery of a prostitute. She steps into the room, bewildered, having forgotten her absurd and unseemly costume with its hat and flame-colored feather. From beneath this hat peers a frightened face with beautiful blue eyes, staring in terror. She steps forward into the room, staying close to the door. The priest turns to go, saying a few words of admonition and consolation on his way out. Katerina Ivanovna looks at him, points at her children, and says irritably, "'What am I to do with these?' He tells her to look to God, for he is merciful, and she snaps back that he is not merciful to them. He tells her that to say that is a sin, and tries to reassure her that perhaps the man who caused the accident will compensate her for Marmeladov's lost wages. This provokes her to rail against Marmeladov for bringing them no earnings but only misery, and she thanks God that he is dying. The priest tells her again that such feelings are a sin, and she must forgive, while she gives marmalade water and wipes the blood and sweat from his face. She flies into a frenzy, screaming that to forgive is only words, shouting at him about the forgiveness in her night spent laboring, and finally coughing a terrible cough that brings blood to her lips. The priest bows his head and says nothing. Marmeladov tries to say something to Katerina Ivanovna, but she tells him there is no need. She knows. Then he sees Sonya standing in the corner, meekly awaiting her turn to say goodbye to her father. He cries out to her to forgive and holds out his hand to her, falling off the sofa and face down on the floor. Sonya runs up with a faint cry and embraces him. He dies in her arms. Katerina Ivanovna cries out that she is ruined, and they will have nothing to eat. Raskolnikov goes up to her and says that when they met, Marmeladov spoke of her with reverence, that the two of them became friends, and that he will now do everything he can to repay the debt to his dead friend. He gives her twenty rubles, promising to come again with more. He goes out, and on his way, jostles against Nikodim Femich. He tells him the situation, and asks him to cheer up Katerina Ivanovna. Nikodim Femich says, but you are spattered with blood, and Raskolnikov responds strangely, yes, I'm covered with blood. Raskolnikov goes out with the sensation of life and strength, like a man sentenced to death who has suddenly been pardoned. As he descends the last steps, he is overtaken by Polenka. She asks him breathlessly what his name is, and where he lives, saying Sonia sent her. He looks back at her with rapture, asking if she loves Sonia, to which she responds earnestly that she loves Sonia more than anyone, and if she will love him, to which she responds by embracing him, kissing him, and resting her little head on his shoulder. He asks if her father loved her, and if she knows her prayers, and she endeavors to answer in her most grown up manner. He asks her to include her servant Rodion in her prayers, and she says she will pray for him for the rest of her life. Raskolnikov walks away triumphant, declaring that life is real, and that his life has not died with the old woman. He summons the reign of reason and light and will and strength, declaring his illness over. He decides to go to Razumihin's party, content for him to win his bet, being prouder and more self-confident every moment. But he was like a man catching at a straw— too hasty in his conclusions, but not knowing it yet. He finds the party and summons Razumihin, who runs out delighted and visibly drunk. Raskolnikov says he only came to tell him he won his bet, and asks him to visit the next day. But Razumihin insists on escorting him home. Before they go, Razumihin sends for Zosimov, who greets Raskolnikov with interest tells him to go to bed at once, and gives him a powder for the night. On the way home, Razumihin drunkenly and almost incoherently blurts out secrets. Zosimov thinks Raskolnikov is mad. Ilya Petrovich had been trying to convince them all that Raskolnikov was the murderer, which Razumihin never believed. But after Raskolnikov annihilated Zamyatov at the Palais de Cristal, that put an end to it. Even the head investigator wants to make his acquaintance. But now they just put him down as mad. Raskolnikov begins babbling about having been at a deathbed, giving them money, being kissed, and seeing someone with a flame-colored feather. And he becomes giddy and asks Razumihin to support him on the stairs. Then, as they approach his room, he tells Razumihin to look. And points to a light from under his door. He says good bye to Razumihin, who says he is going in with him, and Raskolnikov says he knows, but that he nevertheless wants to shake hands and say good bye. They open the door and find, to Raskolnikov's great surprise, his mother and sister, who had been waiting an hour and a half for him. They had been told that he ran away ill and they had been weeping in anguish all that time. They greet him with ecstatic joy, but he does not have the strength even to embrace them. He falls to the ground, fainting. Razumihin lifts him in his strong arms and puts him on the sofa. Raskolnikov regains consciousness, and Razumihin nearly dislocates Dunya's shoulder, pulling her down to show her that he is all right. They look with deep gratitude on this very competent young man, as Raskolnikov's mother had called him, having heard from Nastasia all the kindnesses he has done. The next of my posts was called Nothing But Misfortunes. If you listen to the recording of the reading, I don't need to tell you that the death of Marmoladov crushed my heart. I struggled to read through my tears. Dostoevsky paints the scene with poignant details that make it agonizing. There was the scene of the accident, Marmeladov lying mutilated and disfigured, with blood flowing from his head and face, the coachman loudly proclaiming this a misfortune, but not much distressed, given that he had been driving the carriage of a very important person that the police did not want to inconvenience and the crowd of onlookers gathered to see the spectacle, seemingly more concerned to defend the coachman than to aid the injured man. There was our glimpse of Katerina Ivanovna, trying still to find joy in the recollections of her luxurious past, beginning her grueling nightly labors to wash and mend her children's only clothes, and coughing her terrible, consumptive cough, while we know "'she is about to suffer yet another cruel misfortune. "'There were the innocent children, Polenka, who understands little of Katerina Ivanovna's talking, "'but strives her utmost to appear to understand "'because she knows her mother needs her. "'The little boy, sitting still with wide-open eyes "'and turned-out toes, "'while he waits patiently for his mother and sister "'to undress him for bed.' and sweet little barefoot Lida, wearing literal rags, quietly waiting her turn. There are Katerina Ivanovna's painfully divided feelings of love for her husband and rage against the misery he has brought them. When the policemen carry in his dying body, she cries despairingly, he's done it this time, but she also rushes to his side, stifles her own screams, "'and tends to his wounds. "'She calls him a drunk and a thief, "'says he threw himself under the horses, "'and declares she is glad he is dying, "'because it means one less mouth to feed. "'But she says all this while down on her knees, "'giving him water, setting his pillow straight, "'and wiping the blood and sweat from his head. "'She scorns the priest's admonishment "'that she must forgive, saying those are just words.' Her suffering has been her forgiveness. In the recording of this chapter, I read her words of spite with a tone of heartbroken sorrow, because that's what I was feeling. But also, underneath her self-protective anger, it's what she was feeling too. There's the moment that Katerina Ivanovna sends Polenka to run for Sonia, and the little boy suddenly cries out after her, Run your fastest! I don't even know how to describe why I found that one little line so painful to read. It's something about his guileless effort to participate in what is happening, to help, when we know how little he understands and how much he will suffer. There was Marmeladov's momentary return to consciousness, his croaking request for a priest, his frenzied observation of little Lita's bare feet, his agonized effort to ask Katerina Ivanovna's forgiveness, and his terrible suffering as he sees, standing in the corner, Sonia, and he holds out his hand to her, cries to her to forgive, and falls face down on the floor. And there is something about Sonya, her wordless but powerful presence. We know how much she has suffered to save her family, and how Marmoladov has cursed himself for subjecting her to such disgrace. When Katerina Ivanovna sent for her, I found myself waiting with urgent curiosity for the appearance of this saintly young girl. Then she is there, and her entrance is so startlingly quiet. She walks through the crowd in her vulgar and shameful costume, but she is placidly unconscious of it, because in this moment she gives no thought to herself. She enters the room timidly, and she looks on the scene silently. She does not bemoan her cursed life like Katerina Ivanovna. She does not scream and tremble like the children. She stands in the corner, quietly, with parted lips and frightened eyes, and she waits for her turn to say goodbye. It seems right that Marmeladov dies cradled in her arms, just as he and the family had lived in them. There is Katerina Ivanovna's pitiful effort at some shred of dignity as she struggles to straighten her children's ragged clothing while they all kneel on the ground to pray. If you read Notre Dame de Paris with me, you might recall my post on such moments of dignity. Esmeralda holding her shift between her teeth to preserve her modesty. Shackleton pinning his trousers with rusted safety pins after being stranded for more than a year in the Antarctic seas. And now we can add Katerina Ivanovna, struggling to cover little Lita's shoulder as she kneels before her dying father. And there is that most pitiful of all lines in this chapter— when Katerina Ivanovna points to her children and says simply, What am I to do with these? Dostoevsky compels us to look upon this scene with a deep compassion for these suffering people. But he has Raskolnikov look upon it as an opportunity to play the hero and an excuse to feel good about himself. The last of my posts was called The Soul of a Criminal. I was recently rereading The Romantic Manifesto, a book of essays on art by novelist Ayn Rand. In The Basic Principles of Literature, she says, quote, In an average detective story, the criminals are motivated by a superficial notion of material greed. But a novel such as Dostoyevsky's Crime and Punishment reveals the soul of a criminal all the way down to his philosophic premises, unquote. And, in What is Romanticism, she says, Dostoevsky was a passionate moralist whose blind quest for values was expressed only in the fiercely merciless condemnation with which he presented evil characters. No one has equaled him in the psychological depth of his images of human evil. Reading that prompted me to reflect upon and appreciate all over again the depth and nuance of the machinations and the madness and the miserably tortured experience of this man, so inestimably far from the conventional cardboard criminal. Let's look at a few of the insights we are given into his soul just from the last two chapters. First, after Luzhin leaves, he experiences a sudden dispelling of his recent panic and a strange calm, which we learn is the calmness of a resolution to die. He has been living with an oppressive and debilitating fear of being caught, thinking again that he has been discovered at every turn, and he cannot, he will not, go on living like that. Just as wanton as the inspiration to die is his decision instead to confess. Quote, The energy with which he had set out to make an end of it all was gone, and complete apathy had succeeded it." Unquote. He moves in a daze, driven by capricious impulses, afraid of thought. When he goes out into the dusty air, dizzy and with feverish eyes, compelled by a sense of firm purpose, the purpose of dying, he, quote, "...does not know and does not think where he was going. He drives away thought. Thought tortures him." Throughout his maniacal conversation with Zamyatov, he seems pushed along by instinct, aware always of what he is doing, but never in control of doing it. As he reaches the moment of actually saying the words, he knows what he is doing, but cannot restrain himself. He experiences the words as threatening to break out of him he finds himself continually, unconsciously, and perversely drawn back to his crime. First to the Haymarket, where he had last seen Lizaveta, and later to the house, up the stairs, and shockingly straight into the apartment. Quote, an overwhelming, unaccountable prompting draws him on, unquote. And when he arrives at the scene of the crime, he almost expects to find it exactly as he left it. I read this section in horror, as I followed him up those stairs and through that door, and at one point I said aloud, What are you doing? and had to stop and do the recording again. He seems consumed by a sick and inexplicable compulsion to dwell in that monstrous moment, however much it haunts his soul and has destroyed whatever life there was in him. He is tortured by the acts of kindness done for him he continually scorns Nastasia's efforts to tend to him, as she, with saintly patience, again and again brings him tea, and again and again is greeted with spiteful ingratitude. He is inhumanly cruel to Razumihin, whom he attacks for his uninvited beneficence, and begs to let him be. And then, when Razumihin ignores his attacks with heroic strength, Mocks him for the weakness of a spineless man who would let anybody beat him for sheer benevolence. And finally, after he witnesses the death of Marmoladov and he plays the role of the generous friend who would carry him home, pay his doctor's fees, how he delights in saying again and again, I'll pay, I'll pay, and look after his grieving family, I thought the scene would get to him in some way but all that seems to have gotten to him is a jolt of pseudo-self-esteem. Katerina Ivanovna's appreciation, Sonia's message, Polenka's kiss, they all seem to renew his energy by fueling him with an utterly false sense of his own value. In the glow of their gratitude, pride and self-confidence grow in him. But we know, and Dostoevsky explicitly tells us, that he is grasping at straws. Before the chapter is over, it has faded, and even his effort to tell the story to Razumihin just peters out. These are some of my observations of this criminal soul, but I know there's still so much more to it than that.